All right. Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I remembered to put my mic on for this service, so we are good to go, right? And we're ready to dive in this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome, glad that you would join us. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we'd love to do that. So come find me or Becky or anybody else who looks like they know which direction the bathrooms are around here. And uh, we would love, to, we'd love to get to know you and get you plugged in here. So um, if you are new, we are visiting, uh, we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, if you've been gone or if you're just joining us for the first time, we can catch you up briefly on where we're at and we'll dive into our study this morning. So 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a, a church in the Greek, the, the Greek city of Corinth. And uh, Corinth uh, was a church that Paul actually helped to plant about five years before he wrote this letter. And so they were a people that he knew well and a people that he cared for and helped to start a church with. And so he has a relationship with them. And so Corinth, the city itself, was this incredibly important port city. It was located in this section of Greece that connected kind of the, the, the Peloponnesian Peninsula with the rest of the mainland. And, and so it kind of served as this de facto port city between Rome and the rest of the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. So it was a very important and wealthy port city. But, but Corinth was also a new city. See, Rome had conquered the city of Corinth about 100 or 200 years before the writing of this letter. And they basically desolate, left the, the city desolate. And they kind of left it that way for about 100 years. And then they decided that it was about time to resettle that city and, and start afresh. And so they basically moved a bunch of people who were freed slaves and retired army veterans to this city to kind of restart it. And and so what you find in the city of Corinth is, is that it's full of, a, a, of aspirational and upwardly mobily minded people who are, who are looking to make new lives for themselves and new identities and new careers and, and a new situation in life. And, and that context is, is really important because this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset in the city of Corinth, it, it, it was something that filtered through every part of Corinthian culture. From the top to the bottom, it saturated it. You see, everything in Corinth re revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders in the city or, or maintaining your place at the top of it. And it's the thing that everyone in Corinth cared the most about. It was the driving force behind decision-making and all of that kind of stuff. And, and tragically, what you see as you read the letter to the Corinthians is that the church was no exception. You see, what's painfully obvious is that for that, this church, their, their primary, uh, their primary uh, objective, their, their highest priority, it was their own glory. And it was their own social advancement rather than God's glory and the advancing of his kingdom and his gospel. And, and as you can imagine, that was causing all kinds of problems in this church. In fact, as you read the letter, what you find is that the vast majority of the issues that Paul has to address in this church, they stem from this very, this very issue that these people in this church are they're committed to pursuing their own glory and their own social advancement rather than God's glory and his, his kingdom and as we saw the past few weeks, the first area that this underlying problem was manifesting itself was in divisiveness and tribalism in this young church. You see, people were forming factions around the various leaders in the church and, and fighting amongst each other. They were boasting each of these leaders and fighting amongst each other. And, and these, it's important to understand that the divisions and the, and the factions that were forming, they weren't theological things. They weren't popularity things. Instead, they were, they were rooted in the way that this church had kind of imported their culture system of patronage into the life of the church. And 
And they were looking to these leaders as influential patrons who could help them climb the, 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 the social ladder in the city of Corinth and, and to achieve and, and to get the identity and the status that they were looking for. And so you see, despite the identity that they already have in Christ that Paul reminds them of throughout chapter 1 especially, they're working to manufacture and secure their own identity and to make something for themselves by attaching themselves to leaders like Paul or Apollos. That's one of the things that they're doing. And we see that they're not living in light of the truths of the gospel. They're living in lies of, of the wisdom of the world. And instead of being formed by the gospel and being formed by God's wisdom, they're being formed by the wisdom of the world. And they're looking to human leaders to give them something that God has already given them. And so we see throughout chapter 1 and 2 how Paul shows how, how the wisdom of the gospel, it, it systematically undermines this Corinthian-formed view of identity and of status and, and the way that they're looking at leadership. But, but Paul's not just trying to get this church to stop viewing their identity and their status and their leaders through, through Corinthian glasses. He's trying instead to get them to start viewing those things through gospel lenses with, with, the, with the truth of the gospel to shape and inform their understanding of those things. You see, in contrast to the Corinthian-formed view of leadership, which saw leaders as patrons, influential patrons who could help you climb the social ladder and get the identity that you were trying to get, you see, a gospel-formed view of leadership we saw last week is, describes leaders as wise servants who keep pointing you back to the identity and the status that you already have because of Jesus. And so as we continue our study in chapter 4 this morning, what we're going to see is that Paul's continuing to flesh out what it looks like to have this gospel-formed view of leadership. And, and he's, what we'll see him doing this morning is really highlighting the, the reality of what it means, what the calling of a leader, but also the cost of being a leader in God's kingdom and his purposes. And and he's again calling them and us as well to, to reject the, the wisdom of the world and the way the world calls us to see and view and relate to leadership and instead to embrace this upside down message of the gospel and the way of God's kingdom as we think about leaders. And, and so with that in mind this morning, let's pray and we'll dive into our time in Corinthians chapter four. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning, and thanks for gathering us together that we might study it and learn from it. And, and God, we just want to come this morning and ask that you'd be gracious to speak to us through your word. And God, that we just, we just really are dependent on you. God, I'm dependent on you to be able to teach and preach with anything other than human words. And, and God, we need you as well to enable us to respond rightly to your words. We can't do that on our own accord. And so... God, we just ask humbly by your spirit that you'd be allowing us to be formed by you and formed by your word this morning. And so, God, we just recognize our hearts are so tempted to be formed by our world's view of leadership and all different kinds of things. But God, we ask that you'd shape our understanding of those things and our lives and our character so that we might reflect the person and the work of Jesus. And so, God, we ask humbly that you would do that for our good and for our joy, but ultimately we ask it for your glory. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Verse 1 begins this way. Again, Paul writing to this church in Corinth. He says, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries of God that he's revealed. Now it's required that those who have been entrust, given a trust must prove faithful. 
For I care very little if I am judged by you or by human court. Indeed, I, am even, I don't even judge myself. And my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. For it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time and wait until the Lord comes. For he'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then, they will, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over and against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God's put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena, we, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. And we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. And we are weak, but you seem so strong. And you are honored, and we are dishonored. And to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, and we're in rags, and we are brutally treated, and we are homeless. And we work hard with our own hands, and when we are cursed, we bless, and when we are persecuted, we endure it, and when we are slandered, we answer kindly. For we have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world right up until this very moment. But I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. It's the word of the Lord. You see, what Paul's doing this morning is he's continuing to flesh out what it looks like to have this gospel-formed view of leadership. And, and we see this morning, the first thing that he's teaching is that Christian leaders are, are not, they're not powerful, influential patrons. He says they, they are instead accountable stewards. See, in the Corinthian worldview, see, people aspired to positions of leadership because they were positions that gave you personal power and influence and authority and, and got you honor and praise from other people. But like we saw last week, Christian leadership isn't a position of personal power and authority and praise. Instead, it's a position of humility and of service. You see, Paul, he, he describes himself and Apollos, these leaders that, that the church is boasting, and he describes them as just humble servants. As mere gardeners, they had no power of their own. They were just tools in God's hands, and God's the one who had all the power, and he's the one who had all of the authority. And what we see in our passage this morning is that Paul's expanding on that definition. He's expanding on that description. And in verse 1, he describes leaders as stewards. Verse 1, it reads, it says, Regard us then as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. The ESV says it as those who are stewards of the mysteries of God. I see a steward is someone who has been entrusted uh, with someone else's property or resources. And, and their job is to manage those things on behalf of the owner and at the direction of the owner and for the benefit of the owner. Now see, a steward doesn't have or exercise any of their own power or their own authority. Instead, the only power and authority that they have has been given to them by the owner. And Paul hits this idea, he hits on this idea again in verse 7 when he says, For what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why are you boasting as though you did not? 
You see, the, the Corinthians, they saw leadership as ultimately about them and for their benefit. You see, it was about them getting power and getting authority and getting influence over other people or being seen by others as praiseworthy, as, as worthy of honor and respect. But Paul's saying that leaders aren't, aren't about their own glory. Instead, they're really just stewards who are themselves under authority. The, the word that's actually translated as servant there in verse 1, it's a word we saw used uh, earlier in chapter 3, but this word is a little bit different. It's, a, it's, a, it's slightly different than the word we saw translated as servant in chapter 3. It's a word that literally means under rower. It would have been used of, of the people that would kind of like in Greek boats, if you ever watch like the, you know, the movies about Greek world or whatever, right? they have these boats that are kind of really low in the water. And so uh, there's tons of oars that are coming out through the bottom. And so an under rower would have been someone who was kind of in the bowels of the ship, rowing the ships at the behest of the captain, who was, they couldn't see where they were going and they couldn't really see what was happening, but instead they were following the direction of the captain of the ship. And so Paul, he's using this idea here. It's not a word that's used to denote having power and authority. It's a word that's used to denote being under power and authority. Paul uses this term to emphasize what it means to have the mindset of a steward. You see, he says, a steward then is a, it's really an under rower for Jesus. See, Jesus is the captain. He is the true master. And they serve him and they work for him and they're following his leadership and his direction, not their own. And they're not after their own power and their own authority. Instead, they are under the authority of someone else. And I don't know if you ever noticed this. This is a small thing here at River City. But, but whenever Aaron or I, whenever we introduce ourselves to you, we always use the language that we are one of the pastors here at River City. And we do that intentionally, not only because Aaron and I share leadership here at River City equally, but because we do that under Jesus' good authority. So a lot of times people want to know, who's the, who's the senior pastor? Who's really in charge around here? Jesus is the senior pastor at River City. He is the one at the top of the org chart. He is the one all of us submit ourselves to. And the goal is not for one of us to be the one who calls the shots, but for all of us to be under rowers, under Jesus' good authority. You see, he is the one that's at the top, and he is the one that is calling the shots here. He's the senior pastor here at River City, not me, not Aaron, not anyone else. And I just need to say this. It is good to be under authority. You see, we live in a world that is, that is obsessed with being your own authority, with being the, the boss of your own life and your own future. And, and the, the worst thing that can happen is when someone else tells you what to do, when someone else has authority over you. You see, but the reality is what you see in Scripture over and over and over again is that it is good and wise to be under authority. In fact, when you are not under authority, that's a recipe, it's always a recipe for disaster. One of the most common themes you see in, in cases of spiritual leaders who have fallen, who, 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 have, who have lost their positions of ministry and who have, who have failed out of ministry, what you see is that one of the most common themes is that they refuse to put themselves under anyone's authority. I need you to know at River City, Aaron and I, who are your pastors here, we actively, intentionally put ourselves under the authority of other leaders, whether that's people in our denomination or uh, our church planning director or other people who look at our finances at a church, who, who we invite to speak into our lives, to speak into us as leaders. You see, we actively, intentionally put ourselves under the authority of others and also under the authority of Jesus. And I want to encourage you as well. 
See, we live in a world that's obsessed with being your own authority. You see, but the Bible encourages us and calls us to put ourselves under the authority of others. Now, that doesn't mean that you should just put yourself under anybody's authority. That's, that's a recipe for disaster, right? You need to think wisely about whose authority you are putting yourself under. But to endlessly be your own authority is not a position of life and freedom. That's a position that will always end badly. And so whose position, who's, who are you putting yourself under the authority of? Paul says Christian leaders are, are stewards who exercise authority on God's behalf and who are under his good authority themselves. And he goes on to highlight how what that means is that they are accountable then to God. Verse 2, he goes on. So now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. For I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. And my, my conscience is clear, he says, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. You see, Paul, he's saying here, he says, I am a steward on behalf of Christ, and what he's entrusted me with is the mysteries that God has revealed. We saw in chapter 1 and 2 that that's language for the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus and the upside-down message of the cross. And he, he says at the end of the day that I'm going to give an account to, to Jesus for how I stewarded what he gave me to steward. And he says, and Jesus is going to be the judge if I was faithful or not. He says, I'm not the judge if I was faithful. And you, Corinthian church, you aren't the judge if I was faithful. Jesus is the one who decides. He is the one who has the, the, the final evaluation of whether or not I was faithful. You see, I need you to see this. Paul is not saying that he doesn't care what the Corinthians think. He's not saying that he doesn't care what their, their thoughts are or anything like that. He's, what he's saying simply is that their opinion is not the one that matters most. It's God's opinion that matters most. You see, leaders cannot lead based on the opinions and the praise of people. See, leaders must care most about what God thinks, not about what people think. And I'll say this, the only way that you will ever be able to be a faithful steward of the, the mysteries of God and the good news of the gospel is if you care most about what God thinks rather than what people think. There's no way you'll be able to be a faithful steward if what drives your actions and decisions is what people think. You must care most about what God thinks. You see, but it's not, just what, it's not just caring most about what God thinks that's just what we should be doing. It's good news for us. You see, leaders can't be controlled by the opinions of others or their own opinion of themselves because that's just like a weight that you cannot bear. One commentator, he writes it this way, he says, In a culture where success equals life and failure equals death, people spend their lives trying to secure their own meaning and worth and significance. He says, we're exhausted by this because we are living out our lives in front of a watching and yet critical world. See, the reality is, is that when we're most concerned about what God thinks, not only are we in a spot of doing what is right, but that's actually a place of freedom. You see, it frees us instead to live unto him instead of being controlled by the opinions of people. And instead, it actually frees us to actually be able to love and serve people. You see, if you are ruled by the opinions of others, if, if the thing that matters most is what other people think of you, you can never actually love and serve them. Instead, you will always just be using them to get something for yourself. And that's not what it means to love and to serve people. That's actually just manipulation. You see, and it's only when you are set free by Jesus and to care most about what he thinks that you'll actually be free to love and to serve and to lead other people well for him. 
So Paul says that as an accountable steward that, that he's most concerned about God's evaluation of him, not people's. And, and he goes on to point out that those things are really different things. He's, he's trying to encourage the, the Corinthians to change their evaluation. Verse 5, he says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time and wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. You see, Paul's saying, he says, people, they make snap judgments without all the data and without all the information, and they quickly form opinions about others and, and the value of others, and oftentimes they do not have an accurate opinion because they cannot see the whole reality. He said, he says, God sees the whole story. Not just the parts we want him or others to see. He sees the whole thing. He, he evaluates not just the stuff on the outside. Paul says he sees the motives of the heart. He sees the whole picture. He doesn't just see what's going on. He sees why it's happening. You see, and Paul says people look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And see, God's not just concerned with what we do. He's even more concerned with why we do the things we do over and over and over in Scripture. You see, God is not primarily just after external conformity. He is after internal transformation. He's after a heart that desires to obey and live for him rather than just one that can conform their life to some kind of pattern. You see, God sees what's going on internally. And he invites the Corinthians to withhold their judgment so that they might see what's really going on on a heart level, not just use the external stuff. And lastly, he says, that, he says that people's evaluation is often based on what others think is honorable and the praise that they give. But Paul says that he's concerned about what God thinks and the praise that God gives. He's after, he's after God's praise. He's after God's affirmation, not people's. And his guide is, is God's word, not the word of people, right? He says, this is, I've applied these things to myself so that you might understand what it means not to go beyond what is written. You see, Paul's final authority is the word of God. It's the thing that holds the final sway because God's word is a revelation of God's very heart and character and his mind. And so God says, I'm going to submit, my, Paul says, I'm going to submit myself to God's authority and to the authority of his word. And I'm going to care most about what he has to say and the praise that he might bring far more than I will about what you have to say or what the people of this world have to say. And I'll just say this, is that not an incredible mark of what it really means to be mature. It is so hard to do that. It is so hard to not live for the praise of people. See, everything in our world, it's so easy and present to live for the opinions of others. There are opinions you can see and hear and it feel like it changes your life. See, but the mark of true maturity, Paul says, is, is that you live not just for the, you live instead of the, for the opinions of people, you live based on the opinions of God. You see, and that is difficult to do. Here's the bottom line Paul's highlighting here. He says, the gospel says that our evaluation as stewards is not ultimately based on what we think of ourselves or what others think of us, but instead what God thinks of us. 
And ultimately, God evaluates us based on our faithfulness to the person and the work of Jesus. And this is, changes the way that we think about ourselves. And, and what it really does is that it turns our failures upside down oftentimes. And that's what, that's what makes all the difference as you read the last couple of verses in this passage. You see, the end of this passage is, is full of ironic sarcasm. You see in verses 8 through 13, Paul's not trying to be mean. He, but he, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get this church who is so proud of themselves and so full of boasting and who think they're so mature and who think they've really got it all together. He's trying to help them to see how their view of leadership is totally at odds with what it really means to follow Jesus. It's totally at odds with what it looks like, with what the pattern of, of following Jesus really looks like in the lives of other leaders. See, the Corinthians see leadership as a way up the social ladder, as a way to a life of, of being praised and of being served by others. And yet Paul says in these last few verses that, that real leadership is actually the quick way down the ladder in this world of, of praise and honor. You see, it's, it's not the road to a life of being served and being praised. It's the road to a life of serving others and living for the praise of God rather than the praise of people. Really what it is, these last few verses, they're a description, they're, they're a call to count the cost. See, verse 8, he says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Already you reign in that without us. Those are, those are words and phrases that the Stoic philosophers of the day would have used about themselves, right? We're good. We got all we want. We got all we need. We're good to go. We don't need anything else, right? And he goes on, he says, how I wish that you had really begun to reign. How I wish that was really true. Because it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's the way that God's leading me doesn't seem like it's the pattern that God is setting for other leaders. And I wish that was true. He says, for it seems to me that God's put us as apostles, as leaders, he says, on display at the end of the procession, like those who are condemned to die in the arena. He says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. That's ironic, right? They're not actually wise. <laughs> He says, you seem so wise to yourself. He says, we, we he says in, uh, in uh, verse 10, he says, you, you, we are fools, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're so strong. You are so honored. You're at the front of the parade. You're at the front of the procession, but we are so dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags and we're brutally treated and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And when we're cursed, we bless. And when we're persecuted, we endure it. And when we're slandered, we answer kindly. And we become, he says, the scum of the earth the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. You see, the language that Paul's using there, that language of being put on display in, the, in a procession, that's the language that would have been used of, of Roman generals who, who would parade behind them through the city the people that they had conquered. And so they would win these battles, and what they would do is they would put on these massive parades, and all the people that they had defeated, they'd put them at the end of the train, at the end of the parade, and they'd drag them all along as, as proof to just shame them, and as proof to show how glorious and powerful they really were. And he says, that's actually a lot better of the description of the reality of what it means to be a leader. You see, leaders aren't praiseworthy in the world's eyes. Instead, they're like the people at the back of the train who have been conquered. They're the people who don't, people despise and they see as the scum of the earth, the garbage, the stuff to be thrown away and discarded. You see, Paul's, his view of leadership here 
Again, the Corinthians, they saw leadership as the path to praise and honor and power and personal authority. And Paul says, you're going the wrong direction. See, a gospel-formed view of leadership is about not climbing up the ladder, but it's about walking yourself down it. So the question is, what would cause anybody to want to embrace that kind of a call to leadership? What would, what would cause anybody to be like, oh yeah, sign me up for that. Super stoked about being the scum of the earth. I love being homeless. That sounds amazing, right? Like, this is great. Let's do it. No, like those are all things you look at that list and you're like, I'm out. Like, I, I'm out. That doesn't, I don't want any part of that list. So what is, it a, what is it that would cause us as followers of Jesus, what would cause the Apostle Paul and others to embrace that kind of a call to leadership? If that's what leadership means, if leadership is about walking down the ladders, not the way up, what calls you to, in, to accept that? There is one thing, and it's when you see that Jesus has been that kind of a leader for you. See, when, when you see that the king of the universe was himself made a spectacle, hung naked on the cross, and he did it for you. When you see that the very wisdom of God was made out to be a fool, mocked and despised and scorned, and he did it for you. When you see that the power that created and sustained the universe made himself lowly and weak and humiliated, and he did it for you. When you see that the very bread of life himself chose to become hungry and thirsty so that you might be full. When you see that Jesus, who on the cross was reviled and hated, instead chose to bless to ask God to forgive even you. You see, when you see that Jesus was that kind of a leader for you, what happens is you are compelled to follow him down the ladders of honor and praise in this world into a life of sacrifice and of service to him and to others because you know what's at the end of that train is real honor, is real praise, and you see a king who has already done it for you. But I need you to see this. It's so important you see this, otherwise none of this will matter. Verse 14, Paul writes, he says, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you. As dear children, he says he is lovingly trying to warn them. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 he's speaking to his disciples this way he says whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me he says for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever would lose their life for me will find it you see in the Corinthians they are consumed with finding their life they're consumed with finding it in the praise of people and being seen as honorable and praiseworthy and finding power and influence in this world. And, and Jesus and Paul are calling out to them as a warning. That is the only way you will lose it. The only thing at the end of that road is a life that has been lost. He says, oh, but if you would lose your life for my sake, if you would follow, like me, Paul says, if you would follow Jesus down the ladders in this world, what you'd find is the life you're really looking for. You'd find in the midst of the sacrifice, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty and the hardship, in the midst of the lack of being praised by others, all you'll find is that you'll find the praise of Jesus at the end of that road. And it is always 
always worth it. You see, the Corinthians, they saw Paul's life. In their eyes, it was, his life was a spectacle of failure. But the reality is that it was a reflection of Jesus and the cross. You see, in the cross is this ultimate paradox of life and death because what we find at the cross is the, is the reality that, the only, that it's only by dying with Christ to ourselves, to our own glory and our own desires to be praised, that we'll actually find the life and the praise that we're really looking for. The kind of praise from the only one that really matters. You see, in every week as we take communion, what we're reminding ourselves of is that reality. Reminding ourselves that Jesus was the kind of leader who would walk down the ladders in this world for our good so that we might be saved. With the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. He poured himself out on our behalf, not to get something from us, but to give us all that we would need. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a, it's a chance for us to remember Jesus and who he is and all that he has done so that in remembering him that we would be filled with all the power and motivation that we would be needed to give our lives over to him and to follow him down the ladders of honor and praise in our world so that we might find praise from him. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if he is the one in whom your hope rests, if you look to him to give you an identity and a meaning and a purpose, then whenever you're ready, take communion. Do it as a reminder of all that he gave up for you so that you might be full of a motivation to pour your life out for the good of others instead of yourself. But if not, if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to receive an identity from him and what it means to trust and to follow him, then I encourage you, hold off on taking communion this morning. Like we saw earlier in the passage, God's not after routines. He's not after going through the motions. He sees what's going on in your heart and what he's longing for is a heart that is submitted and surrendered to him. A heart that trusts him and relies on him alone. And so submit to him before you receive communion. As we close this morning, I just want to encourage you. Talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and, and you're already leaders, whether that's in, in the church or in your home or whatever it might be. And I want to encourage you this morning to ask the question, how is God challenging you to be a faithful steward of what he has entrusted you with? How is he calling you to be a faithful steward I want to encourage you, ask the question, are, do you find yourself being ruled by the opinions of people or do you find yourself being mastered by God's opinions? What he thinks matters most. Are you living for the judgment of others or are you living based on what he says he will judge on? I encourage you, think through that carefully. Some of you are are here and you aspire to roles of leadership. Maybe here in River City or in other places, who knows? Scripture says that that's a good thing. It's a good thing to aspire to roles of leadership and influence. And we're going to need more leaders here at River City if we're going to be, be able to grow in the gospel and make more disciples and plant more churches. We're going to need more leaders if we want any of that to happen. But I want to encourage you this morning to check your heart 
and to check your motivations and to count the cost. You see, is your desire for leadership rooted in getting your own way or having influence over others? Do you feel like you have a lot to offer and you feel like you wish people would just accept your help finally? Or do you realize the reality is that you have absolutely nothing to bring to the table except what Jesus has already given you and you are joyfully glad to give back to him anything he has already given? Are you motivated by a desire to love and to serve God and others? Or is what's driving your, your aspirations to leadership being seen as, as wise and, and praiseworthy by others? Paul speaks to these Corinthians as a warning. The only thing at the end of those motivations is death. See, as well, being a leader for Jesus' kingdom will cost you in the kingdoms of this world. But it is always worth the cost. Spiritual leadership, Paul lays out for these Corinthians, it is hard and it is often heavy. I needed the reminder this week that it's always worth it. To see at the end that Jesus will stand, I'll stand before him and to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is worth whatever cost it might be to live for him and to serve him and to honor him with my life. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who are considering leadership and are aspiring towards it, you need to count the cost, but you also need to see it's worth it. Whatever Jesus asks you to lay down for him, whatever it costs you in the kingdoms of this world, it will always be worth it in the end. Others of you are here this morning, and, and God's wanting uh, to graciously correct your view of leadership altogether. Maybe you've been putting leaders on too high of a pedestal, or whether it's here River City, or leaders out in the community, or other leaders within the Christian world, and I want to encourage you, be thankful for godly leaders, but don't ever put them on such a high pedestal that they cannot be corrected, and they cannot fail, and they, they cannot make mistakes. See, be thankful for godly leaders, but be more thankful for Jesus. Because anything that leaders have is from him. And it's for his praise and glory. Lastly this morning, some of you are here and you need to submit to Jesus' good authority for the first time. You are here this morning and what you've realized is that you have lived a life dead set on being your own authority. And your goal is always to not be under authority but to be your own authority. And I want to invite you this morning to submit yourself to Jesus' good authority. You see, your life will always be a visible display of your submission. And whether you submit to leaders or a worldview or whatever it might be, your life will always be a reflection of what you submit yourself to. And so if you want to look more like Jesus and you want to reflect his nature and his character, you have to submit first to his leadership in your own life. You see, the only way to look more like Jesus and to lead more like Jesus is to submit to him first. See, that's where all of us need to begin by submitting ourselves, not to our own authority, but submitting ourselves to be under his good authority that we might be stewards of all he's chosen to give us for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for the reminder that you give us in it of, of not just the call to live as humble stewards who are accountable to you, but the cost of following you and the cost of, of, of leading others towards the same. 
Jesus, thank you that the position of steward is not just one of, of uh, demeaning, but it's one of incredible honor because it's honor that comes from you. God, it's your opinion that matters most and it's your praise that will matter on the, in the end. And so we ask, Jesus, that you would help us to live for you in that way. God, I pray for the leaders of this church, myself included, that we would be a people who, who are committed to stewarding all that you have given us for your glory, not for our own, and for your purposes, not for our own, and so that your name would be great, God, and not our own. God, and we pray that you would help us as well to count the costs and to see them as hefty, but also to see them as worth paying. Jesus, thanks that you counted the cost and that you were the leader that we needed, that you modeled all of this for us and you received it first for us so that we might receive it with you. God, help us to die to ourselves so that we might live for you instead of the living for the praise of people that we might live for your praise in the end. Thanks that that's worth it. Empower us to do it, King Jesus. Amen.